Welcome you back to Ecclesiastes. We took a break for a few weeks for our Easter series, but today we're going to resume our study of what I think is just a fascinating Old Testament book. And we've titled that series, In Search of the Good Life. And we've learned that Ecclesiastes is the story of one man's journey to try and find uh, true happiness, true meaning, true joy in life. And so without a doubt, this book contains a message that modern day people like us need to hear, certainly need to hear as well. And we're picking up where we left off in chapter 5, and so if you have a, an, uh, an app, a Bible app, you can go there, or a copy of the scriptures, pull up Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and also that study guide that's in your worship folder, or you can take notes on our New Life app, if you would like as well. So our topic for today is why money-hungry people aren't happy. <laughs> why money-hungry people are not happy. And certainly it's true that when you tear free lives full of fun and freedom and friends and happiness, they can buy whatever they want in life, and isn't that the essence of true happiness? So many people make it their life's aim to acquire as much wealth as they possibly can in hopes of joining that fraternity. Well, not only is that true in our day, but it was true back when King Solomon wrote this book. Of course, you probably know that he himself was an extremely wealthy man, perhaps the wealthiest individual of his day, so he could, he could speak as an authority on this topic. He could speak from personal experience. And I want us to hear what he has to say today. And he opens up this section that we're in today by making an observation. And in so much of Ecclesiastes, we find Solomon observing and then reflecting, observing and then reflecting, looking around and, and taking in reality and then mulling it over and then writing down his thoughts. And that's what we find here today. And this observation that he makes in chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, has to do with how things tend to work in government. <laughs> so here we go, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. Those officials. The official is eyed by a higher one, and that doesn't mean eyed with suspicion. It means watched over or looked after or covered. They cover each other. And over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, all of those officials, and the king himself profits from the fields. What's he saying here? I think he's saying that the systems and the bureaucracies that have been set up by the government, which are supposed to help the citizens flourish and thrive, too often fail to do so. He looked at the government of which he was a part. <laughs> he was at the head of it. He was the king, right? And, and this was his observation. And, and as king, he had an inside perspective on this. He, he was part of the system. And he says, I look around and it's not working for the citizens. It's not working for the people. And the reason for this that he points out is that those who held these positions of power, the officials who were appointed or elected to make the system work for the people, they were corrupt. Imagine that. 
They weren't looking out for the people. They were greedy and selfish and looking out for themselves. And he says they were in cahoots with each other. They're watching out for each other like a good old boys club, right? They're all covering for each other and protecting each other in order to retain their power and their prestige and their wealth. Of course, that was an agricultural uh, culture, and so Solomon says that these government officials were taking the resources that the land produced and consuming it themselves instead of making sure that everybody in that kingdom had enough. And even the king himself, you saw that, had to admit that, that he was benefiting from this arrangement to the detriment of the very people he was charged with leading. And so he was admitting that the system, as we might say it, was what? Rigged. The system was rigged to keep the poorer people down and keep the upper class in positions of power. Now, I am so glad that this troubling... I asked myself why Solomon included this observation here. And it occurred to me that perhaps he wanted us to see that even at the highest levels of government, where you would hope and maybe even expect to find selfless service and integrity, even there, we too often find flawed human nature on display with its innate greed and lust for power and for money. People who are already powerful and already wealthy still ambitious to acquire even more at the expense often of their fellow man. This insatiable lust for more, he says, goes all the way to the top. He said, I see it in myself. Now Solomon offers no remedy for this. He, he, he doesn't here offer any recourse. He doesn't say, go out and fix the system, which he could have said. He just, that's not his purpose. He just makes the observation to illustrate a point. And, and it seems clear to me that his point, as we will read through the rest of this passage, is this. It's never enough. It's never enough. Even those at the pinnacle whom we might think would be content are still angling for more power, more wealth, more control. And so what we see here is the king is going to elaborate on this theme by laying out five reasons why money-hungry people aren't happy. Number one, they're not happy because money just cannot ultimately satisfy the human heart. That's why they're not happy. Money doesn't have the ability to do that. Chapter 5 and verse 10, maybe you've heard this verse before. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too, he says, is meaningless. It just can't do it. It doesn't have the ability, the capacity. Solomon aims to expose the lie that I believe people of all ages are prone to believe that more money equals more satisfaction and happiness in life. You ever heard of John D. Rockefeller? You ever heard that name? Rockefeller was an Ohio native. He started the Standard Oil Company. Not essential oils, but standard oil company back in the, the 1870s. 
At one point, John D. Rockefeller became the world's richest man. He was the first ever American to become a billionaire. Well, one time a, a reporter caught up with him and decided to ask him a very uh, incisive question. He said, Mr. Rockefeller, I need to ask you this. You're a billionaire. You've got the world at your fingertips. Let me ask, how much is enough? How much more do you need? His response was very revealing. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more and I'll be satisfied. A man named Richard Easterlin is an economics professor at USC. And he did some study in this area. And what he found is really pretty surprising. Here's what his research revealed. His research said this, there is no significant relationship between happiness and income. He said, if you follow a single person over time as they move from lower income to higher income, you find no appreciable increase in their happiness. Is that disturbing to anybody? There was one interesting study that was done that compared the life satisfaction quotient of the world's richest people and the world's poorest people by conducting a survey of both of those groups. And interestingly, people on the Forbes 400 list, the richest people list, ended up rating their satisfaction level in life at exactly the same level as the people of Maasai, Kenya, and Inuit, Northern Greenland, who, by the way, have no electricity or running water. Same level of satisfaction. I got to thinking about this, and I, I just thought, you know, the, the happiest people I've ever met in my life lived in a little, poor little village called Makono, Uganda. And I'm telling you, materially speaking, compared to us, they have almost nothing. They have nothing of what I have. And it was stunning to see the joy radiating from their faces, and I realized what they've got is Jesus. And it's, he's all they got. And it shows. It radiates out of them. It was stunning to see it. It was very convicting. And I came away from that trip thinking, you know, over here in the West, we're missing something. We've been deceived. Having more stuff is not where it's at. It's not the key to real joy. And Solomon was acknowledging this. The, the human heart, he says, wasn't designed to ultimately be satisfied by money. We were made for a different kind of satisfaction. And that's why money-hungry people will never be truly happy. They're fishing in a bathtub. They're looking for something in a place where it doesn't exist. From a guy who knew. So that's the first reason. The second reason Solomon points to is to me, it's kind of funny. <laughs> he said, uh, the reason that money-hungry people aren't happy, number two, is because more wealth just attracts more consumers. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? In other words, wealth is there for a moment to behold with your eyes and then poof or gulp. <laughs> it's gone consumed by other people. One man put it this way, increased wealth spawns an ever-increasing number of parasites. 
People who strike it rich inevitably find themselves in time surrounded by this growing entourage of paid personnel, right? Maids, nannies, gardeners, tutors, a cousin. You're like, who? What, what was your name again? Everybody is now your good buddy. But their motives are suspect, right? And the wealthy person begins to ask himself, who can I trust? That's a question that poor people don't have to wrestle with that much. I got a blast from the past this week. You ever had one of those? I got a phone call kind of out of the blue from a guy who used to attend here decades ago, actually. Then he moved away. I remember that he had an operation that got botched. And he ended up getting this huge settlement from it, millions of dollars. And so what he decided to do was to move down south. And now with all that money, he decided to basically just live it up. He bought this big house on the lake. And he bought a huge big screen TV that filled up an entire wall of that house. He went out and purchased a couple of boats, a few cars, several new Harley Davidson motorcycles. He told me that he also got himself a new wife, a gal that just happened to come along at the right time. So they were down there, he said, living the dream. But evidently, things changed. And uh, we were talking on the phone this week, and he was kind of sheepish. And he said, Steve, I had all of that, but the truth is I really didn't know who my true friends were anymore. All kinds of people were coming around, acting like we were really close. He said it was strange. And he said, then one day, my wife decided to up and leave me, call it quits on our marriage, and she got together with this attorney, and together they, they took me for everything I had. So it's all gone, except the house and one Harley, and I'm about to sell the house. He said, Steve, it's really interesting. Some of those friends who are around all the time, they just don't come by much anymore. I don't see them too much. And I listened to him, and I heard his sad tale of woe, and I was about to offer my condolences when he kind of interrupted me, and he said, hey, hey, it's okay, real it is. I I have one Harley left, so I'm good. He said, actually, I'm really kind of glad that I lost it all. I like knowing who my true friends are. Sometimes people have this notion in their head that having lots of money is going to solve all of their problems. And certainly having money can solve some problems, true, but it can create a new set of problems that maybe you hadn't anticipated. Just like that fellow, many others who came into lots of money would testify that it actually complicated their lives and certainly complexified all of their relationships and friendships. People you barely know will all of a sudden act like your best friend. And all that money... Just watch it get siphoned off by more and more parasites who will show up and likely hang around until they've sucked you completely dry. Then you might just find yourself all alone. Money-hungry people will not be happy, ultimately, is what Solomon is contending here. And there's a third reason, and it's this. Wealth often fails to deliver what it promises. It often fails to deliver what it promises. Verse 12, the sleep of a laborer, talking about a common laborer, a worker, not a wealthy person, the, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, 
whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. All right, so let me give you a test here. True or false? True or false? Coming into a bunch of money this week will guarantee that you will have peace of mind for the rest of your life. (laughs) Some of you are like, I think it's false, but I'd like to try it (laughs) just to see. True or false? Striking it rich today will (laughs) practice. Hey, it could happen, right? Striking it rich today will practically headaches. Nice inheritance waiting for them when you pass on. King Solomon says, don't bank on it. (laughs) Don't bank on that. Beware of trusting in money to do all of that for you. Having loads of money could actually give you more headaches and keep you awake at night, lying awake, worrying if all of your assets are safe and protected. Plus, you might be tempted to just hoard it all and keep it all for yourself and not use it for anything beneficial for anybody else. And what good would that be? Or he says, look, a natural disaster could happen or or a recession. We know what that's about, right? Or the real estate market could tank and you could see your net worth get decimated overnight. Or you might think you're smart and decide to invest in some sort of risky venture and if it ends up going belly up, you could end up with zero to show for it and have nothing in the end to pass on to your heirs. Beware of trusting in money, he says, to provide peace of mind and happiness and lifelong security and ensuring your legacy. Money has been known to overpromise and underdeliver. It's notorious for that. That's pretty sobering, but if that wasn't sobering enough, his next point is even more so. Number four, Solomon contends that earthly wealth has a limited shelf life. A limited shelf life. Verse 15, maybe you've heard this before, maybe this sounds familiar. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. That means carry into the next life. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? I'm thinking that maybe Solomon had read the book of Job in the Old Testament. Remember Job's story? Job had been a very, very wealthy man. But in one bad day, I mean one horrible day, he lost it all. His kids, his livelihood, his possessions, his property. And it was in the wake of that unimaginable tragedy that Job lamented and uttered the words, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. And that was about when his devastated wife chided him for clinging to his faith in God. Remember that? But remember how he responded? Wife, 
Shall we accept good from God and not adversity? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. King Solomon here concurred with Job's statement that despite all of our efforts to obtain wealth and possessions here on the earth, the truth is that money has a relatively short shelf life. You came in with nothing, and that's how you're going to leave. With nothing in your hand. You'll never see a hearse followed by a U-Haul. Riches cannot be transported into eternity. In fact, the book of Proverbs makes the stunning statement that wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. That's the day of judgment. No value. You can't buy your way into heaven. Now, now listen, certainly money can do some good in this life, right? Let's be honest about that. If it's used properly, if it's stewarded well, if it's used wisely, money can do a lot of good in this life. But mark it down, once this life is done and people enter eternity, money will cease to have any value. I mean, up there, gold is pavement, right? What seems to matter so much here, what people wear themselves out to acquire here, will matter very little on the other side. And so maybe this is a good point to interject Jesus' own statement about this. Jesus, our Lord, because it fits here. It was he who said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your Treasure is, there your heart will be also. So no, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't pull a U-Haul through the pearly gates, but you can lay up treasure in heaven now by giving your treasure away here down on the earth, investing it in the things that will last forever, in kingdom work. You following this? Let's review. Solomon is contending that people who love money, who love money, for whom getting more and more and more of it is the chief aim of their life, those people will never be truly happy. Why? Because money doesn't have that capacity to satisfy the human heart. Because having more of it is just going to result in more parasites showing up to suck you dry. Because so often wealth just doesn't deliver on what it seems to promise. And because money loses some of its luster when you realize that it only has value in this short life here on the earth. And now here's one last reason that having lots of money might not bring ultimate happiness. Number five, the downside of experiencing massive loss can be devastating. And I think he's talking here about someone who had lots of wealth and then lost it. Verse 17, all of his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. I think this is referring to the plight of those who once had great riches, but through some calamity, lost it all. And again, I think this harkens back to Job. I think Solomon had Job on the brain. I think it harkens back to that dark and gloomy season that Job entered into 
after his day of disaster. Yes, his initial response, Job's was, was very admirable as we saw. And he was somehow able to keep his faith throughout that entire ordeal. But if you read the whole story, there were times when Job was just hanging on by a thread. Got that picture in your mind of Job sitting there, a picture of misery, taking pieces of broken pottery and scraping the pus out of his boils. He got defensive and angry, angry with God even, angry with his friends who at least showed up, even though their counsel wasn't always the best, at least they were there. And as these days, the monotonous days passed slowly by and no change seemingly, he sunk into depression, he questioned the goodness of God, he said, I wish I'd never been born, I'd rather be dead than go through what I'm going through right now. And here, in verse 17, that's, this seems to be a, a summary description of Job's life. And maybe the lives of some other wealthy people that Solomon knew who, who got their world rocked by devastating loss. Maybe this language even reflects a dark season in Solomon's own life. All his days, he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Sure, some people may come into great wealth with all of its accompanying prestige and fame, but, it, but if you become accustomed to that lifestyle, and if you grow to think that you're entitled to that lifestyle, and that it will always be that way, and then something there, a light dawns, a flash of insight. And like in the previous instances, the daybreak comes, the enjoyment of life ultimately comes from who? From God. From God. And that when you enter God into the equation, it, it changes your outlook. God here is mentioned four times in the next several verses while he's been conspicuously absent up till now. And that leads to a few insights here. And I, I think these insights can form challenges for us. Okay, so here's the first one. Seize the day. Seize the day. Enter into this present moment that's been given to us by God himself. Seize the day. This is a theme we've seen before. It's found all throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. Some commentators refer to it as Solomon's carpe diem awakening. Seize the day. Instead of caving into despair, focus on enjoying the gifts that God is pouring down into your life right now in the midst of your ordinary everyday life or even your devastated life. My dad had a little saying he, growing up. He'd often say to me, he'd say, Steve, you, you got to learn in your life to glory in the grind. You got to learn to revel in the routine of life. I've never forgotten that. Sure, there are some mountaintop experiences in life. I've had some of those. You've had some of those. Those are gifts from God, aren't they? But let's be honest. 95% of life is fairly routine. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> and it's those who learn to revel in the daily routines of eating and 
drinking and working and making a contribution to this world, those who learn to find and enjoy and appreciate life's simple pleasures as gifts from God, it's those people who end up the happiness, happiest in life. Think about this for a minute. When was the last time you just stopped and gave thanks to God for socks? My, my feet are cold all the time. And my wife always says, you, you got a circulation issue there, buddy. And you need to go get that checked out. But I got me some thick, comfortable socks. And I tell you, when I got those socks on, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm feeling good. And I thank God for socks. I got a whole drawer full of socks. I'll bet you do too. One of life's simple pleasures. Grateful for. How about stopping and just appreciating some of life's other simple pleasures? Like Chick-fil-A. Some guy said, how about White Castle? I'm like, no, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think that's a gift from God. How about God's gift of French vanilla cappuccino? Or bacon? I mean, bacon wrapped in bacon, covered in bacon. I mean, it's just a gift from God. It'll kill us, but it's so good. I thank God for some of his simple gifts like rocking chairs. Or how about the undo feature on your computer? Isn't that an awesome gift from God? You do something, it's like, no, 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 undo. Oh, thank God. Thank God it's been retrieved. It's been saved. All that work is not lost. It's a gift from God. How about a gorgeous sunset like we've had several of recently? Or a smile and a hug from a good friend? How about the ability to hear and see and touch? Talk with one of our cancer survivors here in our church, and you'll get a whole new perspective on appreciating the simple pleasures of life and not taking them for granted. Gifts to us every day from a gracious God, but so easy to miss, so easy to overlook. I wonder what simple pleasure from God could you be thankful for today? Think about that for a minute. Listen, you don't have to be rich in this world to find something to enjoy each and every day of your life. There's something that God has rained down into your life that you can be grateful for. But listen, if God does choose to bless you with some wealth in your life, and I hope he does, know that there's nothing inherently evil about that. Use it for good. Use it for good, but realize something. Both the ability to acquire wealth and the ability to truly enjoy it both come from God. And so Solomon here says, seize the day, but he also says, be wise and acknowledge God's sovereignty in your life. Verse 19, moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions, see where it comes from? It comes from God. When God enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift from God. Amen. Now, sure, I can, I can hear somebody say, look, it was by my own keen intellect that I came into my fortune or my own industriousness that I, I made my, my wealth. But Solomon would stop that person and say, well, who gave you your intellect? 
Where did that come from? Who is it that keeps your brain working and your heart beating and your limbs functioning so that you can work and labor and earn your income? Where does that come from? He would say it comes from God. The ability to earn income from our labor is from God, he says. And so he calls us to acknowledge God's sovereignty in the acquisition of our income and our wealth. And wherever that ends up placing us on the socioeconomic scale, Solomon says God would have us to accept our lot in life, for he is sovereign over such things. But interestingly, he also says that God is sovereign over our happiness. Did you notice that? That we can enjoy having money and the things that money can buy because God enables us to do so. So joy itself is also a gift from God, a deep, spiritual, captivating, heart-level joy that God wants for us. And that's what he says in this final verse in this section. Verse 20, he seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. In essence, he's saying, let God enthrall you with his gift of joy. What this means is that the person is not just inclined to let himself be consumed with regrets over past failures, past misfortunes. He's he's not letting that take over his life because he is enjoying today so much. He is seeing God in everything in his life and God's gracious provision for him or for her. You see, having money is not bad. It's when we let money have us. That's the problem, right? It's not money that's evil. What is it? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's okay to possess things as long as those things don't possess us. Listen, listen. God would have our hearts as his people consumed not with money and wealth and the things that money can buy, but with something else, consumed with Him. Consumed with Him. Not consumers, but consumed with His joy. He wants our hearts to be gripped by His Word and by His work that He's carrying out in this world and using us. I ask you, what is better than being used by God in this world? What's better than that? I mean, that will light your fire when you know God used you to bless somebody else in his name the world and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, help other people become followers of Jesus. He would have us be consumed with that and with his great commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love one another. All of those will have impact, not just in this life, but for all of eternity. And we can use our resources, our money, yes, to further those things, can't we, in this world. I believe if we take up that challenge, if we set our hearts on those things, there will be no regrets. And we will be those who are truly full of God's unending joy and happiness. And that's what he wants. Aren't you glad that God wants our joy, our happiness? caught up in him well I'd like to close this sermon out with 
a good word from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor, Timothy, in the New Testament. And I think this applies as much to us as it did to Timothy. And really it sums up this sermon today. So I'm gonna, it's going to come up on the screen and I'm going to have us read this out loud together, okay? Here we go. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves, as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord to us today. 